Tonight is the final sermon in our uh, four-week series called Relationships and Sex in God's New Family. And after uh, three challenging sermons showing how radical the Christian view of, of sex and relationships really is, I was looking forward to a breather. You know, something less countercultural, something easy, marriage. So, but as I prepared this message and also thought over my years of being married, I just came to see how clearly, see clearly how countercultural and radical the Christian view of marriage is. It is, it is radical. And tonight I'll lay that out for you in three sort of descriptive statements and you see if you agree. But I also came to see this, and I hope I can communicate this as well, that it is exactly right here where the Christian vision of marriage is the most distinct, the most actually sort of at odds in many ways with the culture, cultures, both mainstream and church sometimes, that it has the most to offer, that it shows itself to be the most life-giving way. That's what I want to try to cover tonight. What we have to offer in our teachings on marriage really is worth having. It's worth holding on to. All right, number one. The Christian teaching on marriage moves sex from casual to committed. It automatically moves sex from casual to committed. Author Kathleen Bogle writes in her book, Hooking Up, Sex, dating, and relationships on campus, quote, it happens every weekend. In a haze of hormones and alcohol, groups of male and female college students meet at a frat party, a bar, or hang out in a dorm room, and then hook up. As the Research Journal of the American Sociological Association puts it more dryly, casual sexual encounters have become normative behavior among emerging adults of both sexes. Of the many dating apps out there, and there really are many, still the most, the most popular, the most used is Tinder, uh, which was invented, really created, to faci facilitate hookups with a swipe. Uh, the number of US subscribers is now, uh, it's grown every year, it's now uh, 11 million. That's last year's number, it's probably higher now. 75 million around the world. Tinder's income is up to almost $2 billion a year, and 30% of the users are married. Now, the Christian view emerged in a world like this. In the first century, a Christian named Paul arrives in Corinth, which is the tinderbox of the ancient world. Thank you for getting that. Okay. <laughs> I like bad puns. They're the temple... Okay, so he walks into town, and the biggest building by far on the horizon that dominates the skyline is the Temple of Aphrodite. And there, there are over a thousand prostitutes just waiting for your visit. And in that, to those Christians, in that place, Paul says this, those who indulge in sexual sin or who worship idols or commit adultery, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. Now think about it. If these people believe what Paul just told them, you talk about countercultural, some of them will lose their jobs up at the temple. 
Some of them will lose social standing and friends because they don't go now. And Paul says, but some of you were once like that, yeah, but you were cleansed, you were made holy, you were made right with God by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. In the words of historian Rodney Stark, what Paul does here is to say that there can be only one way, one proper way of having a sexual relationship, and that is you have to have a marriage that is monogamous. That's the Christian teaching. Well, that obviously moves sex from casual to committed. It was countercultural then, it's countercultural now. Now, to some extent, Christians have accepted and followed this teaching. Uh, I, I noticed uh, sociologists Scott South and Lay Lay, two collaborated. Frequent attendance at religious services is inversely associated with the odds of having casual sex. Okay, so attendance at worship goes up, likelihood of casual sex goes down. There, there's an inverse correlation, which I find encouraging. But in another study, 41% of practicing Christians now say living together before marriage is a good idea. And I so wish I could sit with those believers, part of my spiritual family, and just converse. Because I, I would want them to see what they're missing out on when they're not choosing their own way, their own Christian way. Uh, there's just bookshelves full of this data, right? Uh, couples who move in together before they get engaged are 48% more likely to divorce than couples who wait. So I'd say, do you want your relationship to last? The countercultural Christian way is actually on your side. And if you have children, you want them to be raised in a home that's as stable as possible. Of course you do. That's better for them. Well, this is where the countercultural Christian way is on your side. Bradford Wilcox, a sociologist at uh, UVA, studied like 14 different countries, I think, like 13 in Europe, the U.S., and found like across the board that if you are a child born to married parents, it is far more likely that when you celebrate your 12th birthday, your parents will still be together. That family stability matters, friends. You see it in school performance, future earnings, ability to trust in relationships, all that thing. And, and, and so I just wish we could get this, this message across. That the Christian way of commitment was designed to protect the vulnerable. It was in Jesus' day where women had almost no power and men could very quickly and easily depending on the rabbi you were following, Hillel or Shammai or others, could discard their wives. And so it was to promote justice that Jesus said these startling words. I tell you this, whoever divorces his wife and marries someone else commits adultery unless his wife has been unfaithful. What is Jesus doing? He's reducing the list of divorceable offenses in their minds from way up here down to close to zero. And, and to the point that his own disciples who are hearing him are going, well, if that's the case, it's better not to get married. Who wants to get in if you can hardly ever get out? But what a treasure commitment is. 
And the more vulnerable you are, the more the treasure matters. Morton Kondracki, the political analyst who spent 16 years on the McLaughlin Group, any of you remember that show? Wrong, you know. <laughs> but anyway, he, uh, Mort battled alcoholism for years. And he says it was his wife, Millie, who actually helped him get sober. Anyway, uh, one day Millie was diagnosed with Parkinson's and she called Mort at his office and was just uh, beside herself. And, and she was like, Mort, I won't be able to uh, talk. I won't be able to walk. You'll have to take me to the bathroom. You won't love me anymore. You'll leave me. And Millie told him, you know, when a man gets Parkinson's, his wife usually stays with him, but when a woman gets it, half the time, the man leaves. Well, Mort decided, I'm going to be in the 50% that stays. In an interview once, he was asked how he did it. He said, you just ask God's help every day, multiple times a day. I couldn't do this without God's help. I've asked God innumerable times, you know, so what is my purpose here on earth? Hoping that he will add a new and grandiose dimension to this, which he never does. The message always comes back the same. Your job here is to take care of Millie. And Mort did that job until she died. I remember when I heard that story like seven years ago, I was like, that is so moving and so beautiful. Not knowing. <laughs> here it comes, friends. Listen, over the last six years, Karen's had seven major orthopedic surgeries. She's needed me to be there to help her walk, to help her dress, all those same kind of things. She needs me to live out this virtue, Christian virtue of commitment. And you know what? I know I need hers. So the Christian teaching on marriage moves sex from casual to committed. And what a treasure it offers the parties who accept it. All right, number two. The Christian teaching on marriage moves sex from coercive to consensual. It moves it from coercive to consensual. Historian Rodney Stark explains, quote, the Roman sexual universe was very brutal. It was a very Harvey Weinstein sexual arena. A Roman man had the right to sexually use anyone who was subordinate to him, slaves, social inferiors, male or female. And then, in a world like that, this Roman guy puts his toga back on and goes, by chance, to one of the early Christian assemblies. And the folks there have just gotten a letter, which they read aloud. Since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. And he's thinking, uh-oh, only there? But the letter goes on. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. And at this point, our Roman guy is nodding his head. This is starting to sound good. But the next line drains all the color from his face. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. At this point, what are you saying? 
Are you saying that a wife has a say over what I do with my body? She has some authority over that? Listen to theologian Beth Felker Jones. Christianity, we might say, invented consensual sex. Now today, our culture is trying to keep this virtue of consent, which all recognize the beauty and power of, but in a culture with casualness. And it's very hard to make that work. Antioch College in Ohio tried, you know, their consent policy, which was a long, long bulleted list that read like this. Bullet, consent is required each and every time there is sexual activity. Bullet, all parties must have a clear and accurate understanding of the sexual activity. Bullet, each new level of sexual activity requires consent. And on and on. But consent really gets murky when, when students move off campus and there's no sort of communal guidelines, right? Or, or anything like that. Christine Emba writes in the New York Times, one could say that we're living in a golden age of sexual freedom. A majority of the public finds premarital sex acceptable. Birth control for women is widely available and with health insurance often free. Sex positivity is celebrated in progressive circles and inhibition often looked down on. Getting rid of the old rules was supposed to make us happy. Instead, nearly half of American adults say that dating has gotten harder over the past 10 years. When I inter here she continues on. When I interviewed dozens of people for my book on sex and relationships, I found that women in particular discussed their sexual experiences in visceral terms, encounters that end in unexpected and alarming acts, a choking, say, or other porn-inspired violence that they go along with out of surprise or resignation and my heart broke. No one should it have to endure coercive sexual activity. Friends, whether it's in the culture of Rome or the culture of America, Christians offer a better way. We offer true consent. People don't have to leave a sexual encounter feeling violated or guilty. And we have a way of making the consent clear and public. It's called a wedding. Now, this is something we have to offer. Bless the Lord. And so I do have to call out <laughs> a place where I think Christians aren't listening to our own teaching. There's a teaching, uh, and you can read Sheila Ray Gregoire about this, but there's a teaching in, very, in popular in evangelical marriage circles that goes like this. Men have these enormous sex drives. God made them to be like that. And so Wives have to make sure to be their fix. Literally, they'll use the analogy of like a methadone fix, or they'll find it somewhere else. Well, that teaching, what does it do? It leads men to a sense of entitlement and women to a sense of obligation, and that can lead to acts of coercion. No, no, no. Paul says in his same letter, don't fool yourselves, those who are abusive will not inherit the kingdom of God. Oh, friends, what a treasure we have in this countercultural teaching that moves sex from coercive to consensual. All right, third and finally, the Christian teaching on marriage moves sex and relationships from ourselves, for ourselves, 
to our service for others. It's not just for ourselves. If you're getting married as Christians, you're committed to being a couple for the common good. Now picture, if you will, four concentric circles like ripples going out in a pond. So you have small, medium, large, and extra large as it's going out. The smallest circle in the middle is the couple themselves. And in our culture, what's increasingly happening is that that circle is getting like so much of the attention. Sometimes all. In recent years, several, several Christian couples I know have gotten married where they just went up into the mountains and were there by themselves or maybe had a photographer, maybe had a minister. Well, in the Christian vision of marriage, the couple is not whispering private intimacies at a wedding ceremony. They are making public vows before God and the community. This is a family moment. This is a Christian community moment. This is a good for the good of society moment. Yeah, yeah, so, so, but people have lost these other circles that a marriage ripples out from the couple to the clan, to the church, to the community, and that it's an event for all of those and should benefit all of those. Now, over the years, Christians have developed some ways to try to preserve that sense, to try to communicate it. One is, we publish what are called the bands of marriage. Uh, uh, some of you may remember that term and seen that in churches. Some of you may not. What it means is that the church publishes three times before a wedding is to be held. We did this with, uh, most recently with Stephen Sloat and Christine Kinberg's wedding. And what it does is, we publish it in our case in the email newsletter, can any of you show just cause why this shouldn't go forward? And what are we doing? We're giving the community some voice. We're saying this is going to affect all of us. This matters to all of us. We're asking for some vetting and some input. And then at the wedding itself, we don't drop the part about can anyone <laughs> show just cause or impediment. We want to know. No, see, the Christian vision of marriage is is for the common good. That's why there's this theme in the Bible of fruitfulness. Fruitfulness. When God creates humans in Genesis, male and female, he blesses them and he says, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and govern it. There, there's both, that, that includes bearing children, if that's God's will, and it also includes kind of whatever rule the earth means. It means contributing in various ways to the betterment of the people who live here and the world itself. Okay. Well, let, let's start with children. It, it's really simple. In the Christian vision, since marriage is the place for sex, then marriage is the place for having and bringing up children. There is an obvious connection. And of course, there is a welcome of any life that comes. I think it might have been last week I quoted the second century Christian who wrote, Christians marry and have children just like other people do, but they do not destroy their offspring. That stands out. But obviously, as I was just pointing out, fruitfulness includes more than children. As theologian Cutter Calloway writes, not every Christian can or even should assume the responsibility of bearing, adopting, fostering, or raising children. 
But it is to say that Christians accept an invitation to marriage. It is with a sense of openness and even expectancy that they're being called into this indissoluble bond, not to have their personal needs met, but in order to serve as a conduit of God's generosity. So what is the fruit of the relationship that Christianity wants to ask that? Not in a guilt-inducing way, but just saying that's the vision. That y'all together would be washing feet, (laughs) serving on your HOA, or whatever. Um, Doing the things that bless and build up in this world. And thankfully, Savior has really been blessed to have a number of couples from the get-go who have modeled that kind of commitment for the common good. Karen and I uh, once wrote a book about finding your marriage's mission. Um, It kind of galloped off into oblivion, but we did. (laughs) And as part of our research, I remember this time we went to a Christian bookstore. There used to be bricks and mortar locations where books were held, and you could go. (laughs) And... We, we, we went and stood in front of the marriage section, which was really quite large. In, in the traditional Christian bookstore, that was a lot, of, a lot of titles. And we were hoping we could find some good books to learn from, maybe draw some ideas from, maybe some quotations from. And we went through every single book there. I remember it was way over 100. I can't remember if it was like 119 or 153, something like that. But at the end of our looking through every one, we, we were actually sitting now on the floor in the aisle with stacks of books all around us. And Karen looks over at me. She goes, you know what? It's like we tell singles, be single for the Lord. Are we telling married couples, be married for ourselves? I never forgot that. That's not, <laughs> that's not the Christian way. Uh, a friend of mine had, he and his wife had three children of their own. And after they were pretty much launched, they adopted three. Which, yeah, was, it turned out to be quite an adventure, truly. Uh, with a lot of ups and a lot of up, uh, downs, truly. But he was telling me, he said, that he and his wife had gone to this gathering for adoptive parents that was sponsored by the state of Illinois. And as they moved around the room and got to meet other adoptive parents, he discovered something. Every single person he talked to was a believer. I was really stunned to hear that. But I think that's the vision, friends. Look, if we believe in justice, we we need to hold on to the Christian teaching on marriage. It helps protect the vulnerable by asking for commitment. It helps protect the dignity of people by asking for consent. And it helps children and communities by asking for fruitfulness. Now, I am not for a moment, please, downplaying all the joys and benefits that can come in a healthy marriage. Of course, after 42 years, Karen and I still look forward to date night. And we have them every week on Thursday if, if President Biden wants to do a state dinner, I'm not going. <laughs> He's not actually asked me, but okay. <laughs> I'm just simply pointing out what doesn't get as much press tonight, I'm trying to point this out, 
that there's also a dimension which has, I'm not sure, been heard as clearly that when Jesus calls a person, any person, every person, he bids them come and die. Shortly after Karen and I got engaged, I remember I was walking where Jenks Hall was over on my right and whatever used to be where the science building is was over on my left. And uh, I was pondering, I was trying to take in what this engagement and, and now soon marriage was going to mean. And I remember this scripture came into my mind so clear and strong, it was like it might have been on a loudspeaker, like dialed up on a, on a sound system. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And not until that moment had I ever thought about the fact that gave himself up for her is, is a poetic way of saying, died. Whether married or single, if we want to follow Jesus, we pick up the crossbeam and we follow him. None, but none of us can do that alone. You know, Jesus couldn't carry his own cross beam. He fell under the weight. So he needed Simon of Cyrene to come and help him get it the rest of the way. Friends, you and I need each other. We need other Christians. We need counselors to help us out when we get stuck. We need people to help listen to us and pronounce God's forgiveness we, we need people to encourage us and lift us up when we're getting weak and weary and whatever our particular call is. I cannot live out the commitments of my life without the body of Christ. And I don't think you can either. So this series is going right back where we started. Family of God, I need you. You need me. We need each other. Let's do this together. Amen.